impressive. She really knows how to blow. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> I am drinking milk. Strawberry milk. Strawberry milk. It's not strawberry milk. Honestly, the more I let it sit, the less curdled it looks. No, it's got to reincorporate into itself. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Well, it's it looks a, it's good. It's a fancy uh, food term. Okay. So anyways, first of all, I'm drinking strawberry seltzer water mixed with milk that we discussed last episode on Sam Cook. If you haven't listened to it, then listen to it. It's actually pretty decent. I like this. It's all about the strawberry milk. Um, so on Friday, me and Cassie had a girls' night with our babes. Girls and night. okay, so we played a game. Don't remember what it was called, but there was some truth or dare shit in it. And one of the dares was that our friend Monica, who <laughs> listens to the podcast, had to call McDonald's and make a brunch reservation. <laughs> it was and really this funny. Bitch called McDonald's at like midnight, and she was like, "Um, hi, good afternoon." <laughs> I'd like to make a reservation for brunch. And the woman was like, we don't do that. And she was like, oh, really? Since when? Since when? <laughs> and then they hung up on her. And Jake told me that he heard that story already. I was like, you haven't heard it. It just happened. You told it to me. How? I, I, did I call you on the phone yesterday? I mean, how did you hear it? I don't remember. What Do you have a secret Instagram? Yeah. Do you have a secret Instagram? No. How did you hear about it? You told it? me. When? It had to be yesterday, but I don't remember you what I did yesterday. You asked me to get Cassie to establish a timeline. This happened on Friday. On Saturday, okay, I was so gone I was... the whole day. I didn't talk to you at all. Oh, yeah. Did did everything work out? What? You were supposed to be a witness. Can I get oh, a witness? I That's a, when you told I me. I was a witness. That's what we did yesterday. All right. We can delete wow. this whole argument. I wasn't <laughs> even there. You were the witness. What the fuck? I was like, I didn't see you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> So you did, that was though. before you I did, left. That's I what did I, see him before I went to the... You didn't very, remember that? No. I have very short-term memory, but that's the one thing I remember. She told me that story, oh and I couldn't I remember like, how. how did I tell you? I haven't seen you. <laughs> I literally... I'm glad I can help, but, like... <laughs> Look. If someone comes back and we're like, were you there? You're like, oh, yeah, you were there. <laughs> you, didn't you sign a piece of paper stating you were a witness? Yeah, I did. <laughs> wow. I forgot about that. That's why the notary's there. The notary's the only person who has to remember anything. Not me. Well, I was the one that remembered, so I should be a notary. I got up in the morning after girls' night, and Uh Monica also, (laughs) she was like, oh, no, I got a text message from my dad because one of her other other dares that (laughs) night was to text her dad and say, hey, dad, can you get me a pregnancy test? (laughs) But she specifically said from like CVS or something. Yeah. And it in was... the morning, her dad was like, Monica, <laughs> for are you for real? Like, are you going to call me or not? Mm-hmm. And she was like, never mind. <laughs> I said, Monica, you have to tell him. To explain well, it. She it took a, a picture joke. of the card. For she like... was like, nah, fuck it. Oh, my God. <laughs> like, Monica, you have to tell him that poor man. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, Last night was fun. It was fun. Jake oh, was there. Yeah. there. We were like. Story. That was what was the funny thing because we were talking about it. Alex was like, "Oh, I should have just invited Jake." Yeah, I don't know. No, why. I told him that. No, I said I, I would have invited you, but then we couldn't have talked about our fun girl stuff. Yeah, I don't want to hear that. <laughs> yeah, <I> figure. <laughs> uh, anyway, it was just us eating a bunch of cheese and wine. I've never had so much red wine cheese. in my life. It was too much wine. 
Was it, it a whole was, bottle of wine? It was a uh, probably oh. like seven. <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> it was a lot of fucking wine. Good a grief. lot of cheese. It was and a lot of cheese. We finished that whole ass cheese yeah. ball. Yeah, I like kind of wanted some of that, and I looked in my fridge today, and I was like, "Wow, I guess we ate the whole." You know, those mm-hmm. cheese balls covered in almonds. Mm-hmm. We ate the whole ass thing. Really good. It was really good on triscuits. It like went into the grooves. All right, let's remember this. Let's <laughs> Speaking re- of grooves, let's, let's record. This is a music podcast. <laughs> yes. Um, On that note, welcome everybody to Death by Music Podcast. I am Jake today. Today? And, uh, what are you tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> uh, we got Cassie and Alex here, and uh, we are talking about Lane Staley of... Forgot the name of the fucking group. <laughs> it's on the tip of your tongue. It is. I can see it. <laughs> I'm trying to read. Uh, it's not showing. Allison Chains. Okay. God damn it. <laughs> you better say it with more gusto. Need go. <laughs> you need to go home. Say it with been old. You've been old for 70 yeah. years. Say the band name again. Alice in Chains. Okay. All right. Our sources are Wikipedia, mayoclinic.org about endocarditis. Rolling Stone, there were a couple of really good Rolling Stone articles, um, one from 2002 by Charles R. Cross called The Last Days of Lane Staley. Please, when you yawn, don't do it into I the was, microphone. I was trying to tilt my head I know back. you're very bored about this topic. I know you don't like metal You're just Alice naming Chains, the sources. I'm allowed to yawn at the sources. There was another Rolling Stone article from 1996 by John Viderhorn. We've talked about him before, or we've done, we've had articles from him I before. I do recall screaming that name. One. Yeah, I'm not Viderhorn. Sure. Yeah, he's a As Rolling Stone journalist. Um, the AV Club <laughs> dot. Well, I guess avclub.com. There's a whole thing about Lane Staley and Bradley Noel from Sublime, whatever, by Stephen Hyden, and then therecoveryvillage.com. Some shit about heroin addiction. Mm-hmm. Spoiler alert. That's coming up today. Lane Staley has been requested by a handful of listeners. I think Dave G. Dave Grohl. Not Dave Grohl. Um, I think is I think you say it Gelhoff. Mm-hmm. Um, he got a t-shirt. Anyways, he suggested him, I believe, way back in season one. If you're not familiar with Lane, yes, you are. I don't think so. Yes, you are. Um, he was the front man of Alice in Chains, one of the pivotal bands in the grunge movement out of Seattle. His voice was incredibly distinctive, and his harmonies with Jerry Cantrell were mesmerizing. I'm the man in the box. Um, however, like many... A bad harmony. <laughs> box. <laughs> like many... I'm the box. <laughs> I'm in a box. Sorry. I'm going to turn this podcast off right now. <laughs> Um, however, like many grunge musicians and just musicians in general, Lane struggled with various addictions, which, you know, usually end in tragedy. Lane Rutherford Staley was born on August 22nd, 1967 in Kirkland, Washington to Philip Staley and Nancy Staley. He hated his middle name Rutherford because, well, it's pretty fucking stupid. It's very rich white man. Yep. So he legally had his middle name changed to Thomas as a teenager, a tribute to Tommy Lee of Motley Crue questionable idol ah yes good old thomas lee yes we've had uh (laughs) several conversations about spaghetti incident yeah yeah pretty recently (laughs) yeah um so lane had two sisters as well his parents were christian scientists let's explain what christian science is unlike what its name may suggest it has nothing to do with science what yes uh, founded in the late 1800s by Mary Baker Eddy, the Bible and her book Science and Health with Key to the Scriptures are the main texts of the Church of Christ 
comma, scientist. Yes, stupid and, uh, name. I think James Hetfield's parents were Christian scientists, too. Were they? Yeah, I believe so. Uh, maybe that's where all that early music came from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyways, yeah, it's Christ or Church of Christ, comma, scientist. That's like it, saying my name and then comma, what occupation I have. Yeah. Like Cassie Gardner, comma. Bookkeeper. Ooh, bookkeeper. I was going to say librarian. librarian. <laughs> <laughs> I don't work at a library. <laughs> Anyways, uh, let's see. You could just say general manager. Of a library. <laughs> I <laughs> Okay. I work at the library. Eddie argued in her book that sickness is just an illusion and that you can just pray away your ailments. Yep. Uh, sounds stupid, right? Well, not necessarily if you consider the era when this idea came about. Medical science in the 1800s wasn't exactly what we're familiar with today. Oftentimes, you were probably better off not going to what would have been considered a doctor back then. Got a migraine? Let's cut off your left pinky toe, shave your pubes, and sprinkle about a tablespoon of this cocaine in your scrambled eggs for breakfast. <laughs> that sounds good. Also, yes. I did no! just find out, yes, James Hetfield's parents were very strict Christian scientists. Um, in accordance with their beliefs, they strongly disproved of any medicine or medical treatment and wow. remained loyal to their faith, even as his mother, Cynthia, was dying from cancer. So that is what inspired the lyrics for Dyer's Eve and The God That Failed, um, that he wrote with Metallica because his mom died when he was like 16. Yeah, that, 13. that explains all of their religious, Metallica's religious uh, uh, yeah. work. Yeah. Religious work. So, same, know, same songs, weird fucking cult shit and continue. Yeah. By 1936, membership swelled to 270,000 members, uh, dwindling to a mere 50,000 by 2009, and for good reason. They were dying. Yes. <laughs> aside, from, aside from people dying for stupid reasons, I'm betting people began to see what uh, a bunch of bullshit it was. Uh, over the lifespan of this church, uh, many members and their families died due to lack of needed, legit medical treatments. Mm. Some parents were even prosecuted and convicted of manslaughter or neglect in some cases. Wow. Wow. So, I guess the state can over... I mean, I know, that's, your no. religious belief can be what it is, but if you're neglecting your child, then... It's it's the same as... story. I mean, yeah, if you're not providing proper medical treatment to a kid that is in Right, proper it, yeah. care to them. I mean, it's, it's the same as uh, the cults where they... If you're hurting people or killing them or what have you, if you're abusing them, the government can step in. Yeah, Fair. but neglect you. neglect is also abuse. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So, Let, so yeah, this, you don't have to actively be doing something. You could actively be doing nothing, and that's still abuse. Yeah, like, yeah it if is. If your Absolutely. kid breaks their leg and you're like, oh, we'll just pray it away, then like, go to jail. Goodbye. Fuck you. Well, they're in the article, the Wikipedia article. They do actually use dentists and. Uh, a bunch of other basic medical stuff. So I guess if you do break your bones or break an arm or something, they will go to the doctor and have it set, which doesn't make any sense. But if you have the flu or like, I don't know, herpes, like what do you do? You just Syphilis, pray. you just spray it away? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Interestingly enough, his parents still had some sick musical tastes. Uh, Lane went through their collection and was exposed to Black Sabbath and Deep Purple. Later on, he discovered Anthrax, Judas Priest, Merciful Fate, and Twisted Sister. No, he ain't gonna take it. Honestly, he should have changed his uh, middle name to King Diamond. Yeah, that woman's sicker. Lane King Diamond Staley. (laughs) (laughs) So Lane was really quick, really quick, to hop into music. Lane was in his first rhythm band at age two or three. He was a baby. 
Um, not sure really what a rhythm band is, but apparently it was something with his preschool. Probably a bunch of kids beating on pots and pans in the kitchen. I looked it up. Rhythm band is one of the primary methods of introducing children to play music. Children are given maracas, tambourines, bells, rhythm sticks, and other idiophones with which to beat out a simple rhythm while the teacher plays a song, usually on the piano. So I'm sure that was great to see toddlers performing music. It probably sucked. Yeah. So I wasn't far off. Sounds like a bunch of obnoxious shit. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay, okay. Um, Lane's parents divorced when he was seven, and his mother remarried a guy named Jim Elmer. Glue or FUD? I'm going to go with FUD. Uh, So anyways, Lane took his stepfather's last name for a little bit. Um, Lane doesn't seem... He didn't seem to be very affected by the divorce. He said that he would just kind of like wonder where his dad was sometimes, but generally he was like too busy to give a shit. Um, He decided by age nine that he wanted to be a singer and he wrote notes in his Dr. Seuss All About Me book stating as much. That's so cute. Yeah. So at age 12, Lane had picked up playing drums. He was playing in some glam bands. Hell yeah. Uh, He had seen a rock star in a magazine snorting coke with some hot babes under each arm and Lane said, that's when I decided I wanted to be a rock star. Mm. I wanted to do blow and I wanted those babes under my arms. Granted, didn't know what blow was and I didn't know what sex was, but it looked impressive to me. So, yeah. Very impressionable. Yes, no kidding. (laughs) Um, Playing in a group was an escape for Lane. You know, typical, like, angsty teen shit. He had started smoking and drinking as a teen and had what he described as a very addictive personality. If it was food, working out, or doing drugs, he went all the way. I'm way too lazy for that shit. So you're like the opposite. You're like an unaddictive personality. A dick. (laughs) (laughs) Hmm. Sorry. <laughs> I won't deny. <laughs> okay. Um, so the drumming stint didn't last very long. Lane decided that he'd rather be a singer. In 1984, he joined some classmates in a band called Sliz. Um, Sleaze, I guess, but it's spelled S-L-E-Z. Sliz. It's French. Slizzy. Slizzy. <laughs> uh, they were a glam metal group and mostly did cover songs. Lane's stepbrother, Ken, suggested he try out for the group. Uh, they were pretty blown away by Lane's ability, saying his voice had the grit and the range there as he was able to keep up with Vince Neil on Motley Crue's song, Looks That Kill. Yeah, in 1985, Lane and bandmate Johnny Bacalus were in the audience at a local TV show in Seattle protesting censorship from the PMRC, which we've talked about before. Yeah. Um, the host actually came over to Lane, and he got to voice his, uh, his opinions on the situation. Wow, that's it was pretty cool. cool. Huh? Yeah. That's awesome. So he was just a kid? Yeah. What was he, like Nine. 13, 14 yeah. at this point? That's cool. So the group Sliz, or Sleaze, I guess, uh, made an appearance in a low-budget public access movie called Father Rock. And then by 1986, they had evolved from glam to speed metal. So they were doing a lot of Slayer and Armored Saint covers. And then they changed their name. Discussions started with Alice in Wonderland, with the group finally setting on Alice in Chains and the the N, it's like a Alice N apostrophe chains, like Guns and Roses, Alice in Chains. So they spelled their name with the N apostrophe because they were worried about how their parents, specifically Lane's hyper-Christian mom, would take the bondage reference of Alice in Chains. I did not know that's what, like, 
specifically a bondage reference. Like, it could have just been, like, metaphorical change. I've never like, thought about it. No. In my life. Either. It's just words. I've never questioned it. It's just words. I don't think about any of that. It's just yeah. words that are in my head for some reason. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it seemed to me at first that they might be doing a Guns N' Roses type tribute with the little N apostrophe thing. But it turns out that they did this a year before Appetite for Destruction even came out, which was, like, the breaking album for Guns N' Roses. Visionaries they were. Mm. You could call them the first deal panther lane said that they wanted to change their name so that they could dress in drag and play joke metal so they were doing some weird l type shit you know just like cosplaying as a metal band nancy still didn't approve because she's so negative (laughs) she said that is female bondage you don't want to choose a name like that it's going to push your female audience away i really feel strong about this so she stopped talking to lane for a few weeks because she was so offended I like how she worded it from a business perspective and the like the fact that they would lose female fans because of it. But like both of us had no clue. That's what it's about. I still don't listen to them, but it was like <laughs> that wasn't my reasoning for not. <laughs> so. It wasn't because of the name. It was because of them. The genre. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so Alice in Chains recorded two demos in 1987, which are extremely rare, but can be found on YouTube. So... Not so rare then. Yes, but the... The physical copies? The physical copies okay. are extremely rare. They're originals. All, yes, there are only 100 original tapes of demo number one. In the same year, Jerry Cantrell watched Alice in Chains perform in Tacoma, Washington. Cantrell had recently been kicked out of his parents' house, so after meeting Lane at that show, he was invited to stay with him at the Music Bank, which was their rundown practice space for the band. Soon, Alice in Chains broke up. Staley joined a funk band and asked Cantrell to play guitar for it. He agreed, but only if Staley would join his band with Sean Kinney and Mike Starr. Cantrell's band needed a lead singer, and Lane would always like show up to their auditions um, and just kind of sit in. But all the guys they auditioned were complete garbage, which Cantrell was doing on purpose. Well, yeah. allegedly, they one of the, one of the last ones they uh, auditioned. auditioned was a male stripper, and that's when Lane was like, "Fuck it, I'm joining." Yeah, he was just he like was just sitting so pissed there. off. He's like, "All right, that's it. I'm, I'll just join your band." He was sitting with his friends, and they were like pulling in all these guys who sucked ass. So eventually, Lane threw his hands up, joined Cantrell's group. Cantrell knew what vocals he was looking for, and he was shocked that this voice could come from a little string bean like, like Lane. Cantrell was quoted as saying, "I knew that voice was the guy I wanted to be playing with." It sounded like it came out of a 350-pound biker rather than a skinny little lane. I considered his voice to be my voice. Soon, the funk group that they were both in broke up, and they were in Cantrell's band full-time. They experimented, calling the group Fuck and Diamond Lie. But they, after their performance at the University of Washington, they switched to Alice in Chains. Yes, no, that is Alice in chains not alice and chains i got very confused going through the section i'm like what the fuck was going on here and then i realized it was a you know a spelling change yeah but, they just took off the apostrophe and put an yeah, put i in, in. yeah in so chains. yeah once i figured that out, i was like oh but yeah lane had actually gotten permission from his former bandmates to use the name and then they they changed the spelling of it so mm-hmm. So a promoter named Randy Hauser discovered Alice in Chains and told them that he'd pay to like record some of their demos, but their music bank studio was raided by police one day before recording in the biggest pot raid in the history of Washington. They finally finished their demo in 1988 and they called it the Treehouse Tapes. They were sent off to the managers of Soundgarden 
and then passed off to Columbia Records, who signed Alice in Chains in 1989. A second demo was recorded at that time, which can be found on Sweet Alice, which is like a compilation type thing. So at the time, Staley was a star. His friends recall him being funny, confident. His hair was dyed bright pink. He was finally living in his living his childhood dream of having gorgeous women on each side of him. Now, once they finally like got with their record label, then he was he was doing good. You know, he wasn't like involved in the drugs yet. He okay. wasn't going downhill. He wasn't depressed. He wasn't upset. He was living this childhood dream that he always had. Gotcha. Okay. Um, but he got a little bit later on caught up too much in that lifestyle and you know it went downhill from there but at this time like when they first made it he was he was doing great so facelift their debut album came out on august 21st 1990 this album contains man in the box which jake song for us at the beginning of the show uh, very expertly i might add yes (laughs) which is still played on every rock station ever i thought this might be their only song i knew because i'd heard it over and over again because of that reason but it turns out i knew more than one of them for this very same reason yeah Yeah. they have a lot of songs still on the radio Mm -hmm. which you definitely know like all of them so this album facelift really shaped the group's style with heavy guitar riffs and harmonies yeah like we just mentioned if you listen to rock stations you've heard this before man in the box has a pretty distinctive opening with lane harmonizing with a talk box effect on guitar uh it hit number 18 on billboard mainstream rock charts and was nominated for a grammy award for best hard rock performance in 1992 the song was featured on an episode of beavis and butthead which you can find that on youtube was pretty fun to watch um they Mm -hmm. they didn't shit all over it like they do on some videos it was you know they're like yeah this is pretty sweet uh and it also appeared in rock band 2 and guitar hero live i do recall that Cantrell and Staley were put up in New York City by the record company in a fancy hotel. Um, and this is one of something that Cantrell said when was one of his favorite memories of Lane Staley is that he just made some friends with some homeless dudes. He invited those guys back to the room, fed them room service all night and just talked with them. So, That's cool. yeah, he was just like really down to earth, really chill, really nice. Um, and that's what he wanted people to remember Lane by. Guitarist Jerry Cantrell stated the album was intended to have a moody aura and that it was a direct result of the brooding atmosphere and feel of Seattle. But you still loading them and heating them up with all your single shit you've been dropping. You feel me? Loading them up on. It, it only takes structure. And, and, you know, just paying attention to the climate of the game. Yeah. Know what I mean? So do you- do your homies uh got a role in your in your little you mean? Yeah, yeah, we all we all artists over here, man. I'm y'all trying, all right? Yeah, I'm trying, yeah. trying, I'm trying, oh, yeah? I'm trying to get them on there. Yeah, yeah. Damn, me, me, me. Yeah, look, 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 we all artists, man. We go, you feel me? We gonna have this like. Bro, me and my man, like me and my man Kyle, we be like, I don't know, we play, we play with this <laughs> shit. Right with this I got lie, we play with this shit right now for for. Oh, I got Don't play with it. Take that shit seriously. So Alice went on tour for two whole years after its release, opening for Iggy Pop, Van Halen, and Cassie's favorite, Poison. Honestly, I hate Van Halen more. Why? You hate Van Halen more than Poison? I everybody have... send Cassie hate mail death by podcast team at gmail.com. That's fine. I That's bullshit. <laughs> you hate Van Halen more than Poison. I don't even think I could tell you a Poison song. Exactly. So therefore, so I much. don't know what they are. Therefore, oh how can I hate them? How but I actively hate Van Halen's but Panama. a good time. I like that song. It's in Grind, the movie. 
Oh my god. It's a good song. Okay. Um, anyways, <laughs> Alice in Chains gained a lot of respect. Um, they had some pretty rowdy crowds, and this this was like before Nirvana had blown up. Uh, that's because Weird Al hadn't parodied them yet. Oh. Yes. For more info on that, you can sign up for our Patreon and check out the Kurt Cobain episode to see what I'm talking about. Wait, had Weird Al cover them? He covered yeah, Nirvana. Yeah, it smells like Teen Spirit. Oh, Nirvana. I thought, oh, no, oh, no, oh. Not, not Alice in like, Chains. No, so like Alice in Chains was coming up and they were touring with these metal bands, but it was before the grunge movement really picked up after Nirvana. So the metal fans were like, what the fuck is this music? Because it didn't really match up with who they were playing with. Like, right. So Alice, Alice in Chains was playing with groups like Slayer and Megadeth. And their fans would boo Alice in Chains because they were like, what the fuck is this stuff? Yeah. So Frank Bellow of Anthrax recalled Lane beating some people up in the crowd who were trying to start shit. He'd just jump off the stage and start swinging oh if someone gosh. was like trying to start hey. a fight. <laughs> so back to Lane's childhood dream of doing uh, blow with a bunch of babes. Now he was living it up. Mission accomplished. That, honestly, it was quick. Yeah. Well, you got to set goals for yourself. <laughs> So Lane said it was always his goal to do a line of coke off of his first gold record. So that's exactly what he did. I was thinking off a stripper's ass, but a gold record works too. Yeah, it's less um, sticky, I think. Um, he went Not as much off- glitter. <laughs> Not as much glitter. Yeah, I don't think glitter is good in the nasal cavity, honestly. Um, but yeah, so after this point, Lane kind of went off the deep end. In his own words, he said, I had a great time riding around in limos and eating lobster and getting laid. I went hog wild for a while. I mean, sex is not something I crave so much anymore. I had a great time, but I can't physically or mentally live that lifestyle constantly. Yeah, I never crave lobster either. So. Now, was he craving lobster, or did it just happen to be in the limos he was riding around in? Limo lobster? No. It's the best lobster. <laughs> Limo lobster's the best lobster. Ew. Okay. Um, in an interview with Rolling Stone, <laughs> Kinney said that the group partied like demons from pretty much 1991 on. Nobody in the band really talked about it because um, they didn't want the confrontation but there was a time in the early 90s that the whole group flew out to la weekly for group therapy at staley's rehab center so he had already been like doing some very hard drugs um he was into heroin at this time the bandmates wanted to help lane with his addictions but they also felt like he just wanted to be left alone right and if someone doesn't want to change their behaviors there's literally nothing else you can do for them yeah so they felt like they couldn't say anything yeah because when they did he would get upset and when he got upset then it would hinder the band so they were like i mean we'll Let's just ignore it let him do what Slap he's doing a on it. yeah in 1992 they released an acoustic ep called sap and then in september of that year their second album dirt after four lapd officers were acquitted of beating rodney king the la riots began and that was the first day that they were supposed to record dirt Cantrell was picking up some beer for the session and um, the store that he was at, like people started coming in and looting the store. He got stuck in traffic and then he saw people being just ripped up from their cars and getting beaten. So was that just random citizens doing that to each other? Yeah. I mean, it was the riots. Uh. So he was just in LA and like LA traffic is already fucking terrible. Like you're already in gridlock and he was just trying to go record this thing. And then all this shit started happening around him. So, um, the group, along with Tom Araya from Slayer, who also appeared on the album, they safely left town. They sought some refuge in Joshua Tree in the desert until the riots eased up in L.A. And then they came back to the studio about a week later and began recording. Dirt was their most commercially successful album, debuting at number six on the album's charts. This one has some other insane singles. Wood, which is probably my favorite. 
maybe and then them bones rooster and down in a hole which are all frequently played on mm-hmm. rock radio today mm-hmm. okay so the group was nominated for best hard rock performance at the grammys and wood was also nominated for an mtv vma uh, this album would was really emotional. It was focused on some very heavy topics. Addiction, anger, depression, war. A lot of it was written by Jerry Cantrell as far as the lyrics go, but Lane did start to write some lyrics at that time. Dirt is hands down one of the top 100 metal albums ever and has been named as such by Rolling Stone, Guitar World, Loudwire, and more. Prior to the album's release, Lane had checked into rehab for heroin, but he quickly went back to the drug before eventually going cold turkey. Oh, going cold turkey is impressive, but it doesn't usually last. Doesn't usually last. Yeah. The band's producer, Dave Jordan, uh, was constantly telling Lane that he needed to get clean, but that just pissed Lane off. Sean Kinney and Mike Starr were also dealing with their own alcohol addictions. Songs Sick Man, Junkhead, and Godsmack all reference heroin as the album delves into some heavy topics. So wait, is the band Godsmack also related to heroin or is it just the song? I think they got their name from that song. Okay. From that particular song, like in tribute to Alice in Chains. But that song is really dark. I I don't know. I'm not sure. I haven't really looked into Godsmack because I think they suck. But um. I think that their name is in reference to the Alice in Chains song. Are you googling it, Jake? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he like sat up and was like ready, so I was like, I was, I was trying to do it before he moved on. Oh, yes, it was the band's name, according to Merrill in the Smack This DVD, was taken from the Alice in Chains song "God Smacks." Well, right, it's, cool. a, it's a really dark song, and it's about <laughs> heroin use. But yeah, okay. Uh, so Lane said that the theme of the album was. Turning to drugs to ease personal pain. At first, you think that's the answer, but then as you sink further into your hole, you realize that it's quite the opposite. Unfortunately, Lane later regretted some of his lyrical content. Fans would come up to him and basically brag about being high. He was not trying to glamorize heroin. Don't they have a song called Down in a Hole? They do, yes. Okay. Um, Why do you know that? The radio... You love Alice in Chains. <laughs> no, the radio station. Okay. You listen to okay. it all the time. Then the band went on tour with Ozzy Osbourne for their No More Tours tour. Did, did they also pee on the Alamo? No more And tours. how many tours has Ozzy been on since then? Probably 50. <laughs> so. uh, Staley was involved in an ATV accident just before heading out. He broke his foot, so we had to use crutches on stage for that one. Mike Starr then overdosed in Brazil, and Lane apparently saved him. So Mike was kicked out of the band later for his escalating drug use, and Starr ultimately died in 2011 after an overdose on prescription drugs. It was like a sad loss, but I was thinking to myself, maybe it could be just a wake-up call for the rest of the guys. Well, the other guys, I think by 2011 when he died, were like way past all that shit because Lane had already died and, and Mike had died. Mike was actually on Celebrity Rehab, which Mindy McCready oh, was on. Talked about, Remember yeah. you said yeah, that we'll like get to that. almost yeah. everybody on yeah. Celebrity Rehab like relapses didn't and... fucking, it didn't help anybody. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we'll, we'll talk about Mike Starr again a little bit later. Uh, Alice in Chains' second EP, Jar of Flies, debuted at number one in 1994. This was the first EP ever to debut at number one. But Staley's health was taking a turn for the worst, so the group decided not to tour as planned with Metallica, Danzig, and Suicidal Tendencies, which is unfortunate. Early on, Staley had relapsed, and they were replaced with Candlebox. 
Kurt Cobain's death in 1994 had a huge effect on Lane, and it scared him sober for a little bit. Mm. He went to rehab, and he started working with a bunch of Seattle musicians from Pearl Jam, Screaming Trees, and The Walkabouts. They called themselves Mad Season, so this is like a little super group. And they released an album called Above in March of 1995. Its first single, River of Deceit, was a radio success, and Above was a certified gold record by the RIAA in June of 95. The band ended up going on a semi-permanent hiatus in 96 while they dealt with separate conflicting schedules and Lane's substance abuse issues. Yeah, so during that time, rumors of Staley's addiction were swirling around the media like big time. Um, He was very frail. He was often covering up puncture wounds um, in his hands with gloves. Apparently, when you start to resort to the veins in your hands, then your addiction has gotten really bad. False. That depends on who you ask. There is an addiction recovery website that suggests that the veins in your arms and your hands are often the most visible, therefore making them the easiest to inject into. So it's making them the most common for the use of heroin. In most cases, the veins are close to the surface of the skin um, where they're more accessible. However, the injection marks are harder to hide on your hands. And sometimes when people run out of areas on their arms, they have to move to their hands Mm -hmm. in order to shoot it. Someone would have to begin using other veins due to what they call like track marks, which I'm I'm sure you heard of Mm -hmm. before. Um, They occur due to repeated injections into the same vein. The constant damage to the skin and vein can cause scabbing and scar tissue to develop. And the tracks occur more often when using dull or dirty needles, or even if you don't clean the surface of your skin before injecting. So despite his health, the group had a successful single called River of Deceit, which Cassie just mentioned. They performed at the Moore uh, Theater in Seattle altogether. Jerry Cantrell had been writing his own material in the meantime, and then Sean Kinney and Mike Inez, Inez? Inez. Inez started working with him on that. So in late 1995, Alice and Chains came back together to begin, a, uh, to begin work on a new self-titled album. But there were still some tensions uh, within the group. They were all kind of growing in different directions. So Alice in Chains, the self-titled album, debuted at number one in the United States, with Staley taking over writing most of the lyrics this time. Uh, Lane wrote, he wrote about whatever was on his mind, which was often pretty fucking depressing. Instead of being cathartic and therapeutic, though, he ended up just dragging himself down. There was a, he was apparently severely addicted to heroin during recording this coming in late or just not coming in at all to their sessions. Their manager, Susan Silver, remarked that it was painfully long and it was horrifying to see Lane in his condition. She says, Yet when he was cognizant, he was the sweetest, bright-eyed guy you'd ever want to meet. To be in a meeting with him and have him fall asleep in front of you was gut-wrenching. Cantrell wrote lyrics for the song Grind, which he says was pretty much at the height of publicity about canceled tours, heroin, amputations, everything. Thus, it was another fuck you for saying something about my life type of song. Um, Some rumors about the amputation had it that Lane had lost an arm due to gangrene with abscesses covering the other arm. Okay, so yeah, there was just like a whole bunch of like people talking shit. Yeah, like, okay, well, this song is in response to that. Um, Cantrell and Staley generally hated how depressing it was to record this album, but in the end, they said that they would cherish the memory and they were glad it was completed. Um, Also, as a band manager, don't you have an obligation for the best interest of the band? Mm -hmm. Therefore, why not make something happen with his addiction, with the power you have? I mean, you could go to the label and say, hey, there's a problem. Like, they kicked the other guy out because he had the problem, but I also understand the other side. You can't inhibit the rest of the band 
from making their money or like it's just it's like a catch 22 it's probably because lane was the singer so um, they just were like well just let him do it until he i mean they do tried they did try yeah. he, uh, from what i read he attempted uh rehab 13 times in his life wow and it never worked so i mean they did they did try but it just pissed him off i don't know i mean i did sure. i did also think it was weird that they kicked mike star out but not right. lane but i mean i guess he did kind of leave for a minute uh, to do rehab, and then that's when he joined the Mad Season group or whatever, but he ended up coming back. So they all thought that they could save him with the music and like get him back into it, but it never worked. Yeah. Um, alongside that album, the group released the Nona tapes in that footage. Jerry, It's like a documentary, um, and Jerry Cantrell plays a journalist, and he interviews the band about their new music. Columbia wasn't too happy about the Nona tapes, but it did hit the Billboard video charts. Why were they mad about it? Were they mocking them? I don't like know. Like the label? I think they they just thought it was like childish maybe and oh. not, not super professional. I don't know. It's stupid. Okay. It's pretty hard to find the original VHS copies of this, but the but in 2006, Best Buy put out a DVD version. Now you can find it on Alice in Chains, Vivo, and YouTube. So the cover for their self-titled album is also known as Tripod or the Three-Legged Dog uh, album due to the cover art of a three-legged dog. Hmm. Pretty. I saw a three-legged dog there. at the beach today. Uh, I saw one at, at a brewery I was at. I very, did. That. Well, I saw that same fucking dog. Oh, were you there too? I saw two three-legged dogs today. Oh. I mean, imagine that. Anyways, it was probably the same dog twice. No, it was different <laughs> dogs. But <laughs> yep. So, uh, drummer Sean Kinney designed the album's artwork and was inspired by a three-legged dog named Tripod. That used to chase him during his paper route when he was a kid. I wouldn't be scared of a three-legged dog chasing me on a paper route. It'd still catch me. I'm not fast. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Photographer Rocky Shank put out a casting call in L.A. for a three-legged dog, and the photo he took wasn't used on the original album. Instead, it was used on the 1999 box set Music Bank. The original album cover was actually a fax they had received with a three-legged dog on it. <laughs> that Landon Kentrell liked better, which made Sean Kinney mad because they had just spent all this money on a photo shoot for nothing. <laughs> that's funny. They just got a fax and they were like, yeah. this yeah. sounds good. That's Let's the go one, with that. The best one is yeah. the fax, not the professional photo. That's yeah. awesome. <laughs> Again, the band did not tour for this album, Alice in Chains. This added to the rumors of Lane's drug habit and frustrated the other band members. But as we said, they wanted to help and staying off of the road felt like the only way that they could help Lane. In 1996, Staley was interviewed by John Vederhorn of Rolling Stone. He dodged a lot of questions about his heroin addiction. He kind of implied that he wasn't using anymore or at least he wasn't using every day. He said in the interview, because the guy like straight up asked him, Mm -hmm. Are you using heroin? And Lane was starting to get pissed off. Um, He was like, drugs worked for me for years and now they're turning against me. Now I'm walking through hell and this sucks. I didn't want my fans to think that heroin was cool. Viterhorn drew attention to the puncture marks around Lane's knuckles and wrists, but Lane refused to admit that he was still addicted. That's kind of fucked up as a journalist. Yeah. Uh, That's... You're talking to a human. Yes. Not trying to point out every single flaw that you can visibly see that he's very well aware of. Yeah. So I was just like, I don't know. Maybe he thought it was going to be like a come to Jesus moment with the fans. Like, oh, obviously he's got it really bad. So maybe I should stop doing heroin too. But like, no, that's just a messed up. Don't push people's limits like that. I mean, the guy's already got some fucking problems. And to just 
be like, I'm with Rolling Stone and everybody in the world's going to read this article. Tell me all your deepest, darkest secrets. It's kind of like, no, right. go fuck yourself. That sort of reminds me of the, what was it? Diane Sawyer. I forget who the interviewer of was. Whitney Houston. W- of Whitney Houston. Yeah, and, with and, Bobby and, Brown. And Bobby Brown was sitting right there and, and she brought him over and was like, did you hit Whitney? Or yeah. And he just like was just like, putting uh, him on uh, the spot. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah. Putting him on the spot. Trying to, it, it, it's really unfortunate that people who are in the public eye don't get to have a private personal life. And yeah. I understand that he's struggling with addiction, but you as a journalist, you're not his friend. You're not his family. You're no, you don't actually give a fuck about him. You just want the story. I totally get why he was irritated by it mm-hmm. and dodged the question. Cause like, no, fuck you. Who are you? You're just some guy who's going to make money off of me mm-hmm. for being depressed and for being an addict like no staley and the group they were able to perform a memorable mtv unplugged show that was on april 10th of 1996 and it was their first show in two and a half years but it would also be one of their last mm. in october of 1996 lane's long-term girlfriend they were not together at the time she died but um her name was demery parrot she was also heavily into drugs and heroin, and she passed away after suffering from bacterial endocarditis. All right. This is a direct quote from mayoclinic.org. Endocarditis is a life-threatening inflammation of the inner lining of your heart's chambers and valves. Endocarditis is usually caused by an infection. Bacteria, fungi, or other germs from another part of your body, such as your mouth, spread through your bloodstream and attach to damaged areas in your heart. If it is not treated quickly, endocarditis can damage or destroy your heart valves. Treatments for endocarditis include medications and sometimes surgery. Uh, people at greatest risk of endocarditis usually have damaged heart valves, artificial heart valves, or other heart defects. Yeah, I also read that this too can happen when injecting on non-clean surfaces, and then there's like a bacterial infection It just... Kind yeah, of sends that's unwanted probably, bacteria through your body. Yeah, it's partly she, high gangrene and all that. Same she did stuff. heroin and she got the bacterial infection and it spread to her heart. Yeah, which dirty is, needles. Yeah, yeah, which we talked about on a previous episode. I can't remember who it was, but we were talking about like needle programs. Oh, where they provide clean needles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, that's big why thing. because that's, yeah. with people who are going, if they're going to do it, they're going to do it. But at least you can get them clean needles Mm. so that they're not giving themselves infections and you know hopefully they'll survive the fucking heroin usage but if you're using dirty needles your chances are way way lower so at least if we can get them clean needles then like this could maybe not Mm. be as fatal yeah maybe they can get themselves turned around in time yeah yeah because they also don't just provide you needles they provide you with support and groups and you know Mm. things that can help you hopefully get out of it yeah Anyways, after this awfully traumatic experience of losing his ex-girlfriend, Staley was apparently put on a suicide watch. He moved to a condo. He stopped answering the door and the phone. His health was in such poor condition. Um, He was covered in abscesses. Most of his teeth were gone. Rumors circled around online in 1997, like Cassie mentioned Mm -hmm. earlier, that he had gangrene and had lost an arm, uh, and that he could no longer eat, so that he only drank Ensure, which is like a I think it's like a protein thing that old people drink. Old people, uh, sometimes it's like children who aren't able to like chew food. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's like a dietary supplement. supplement. People tried to get him into rehab, but he was far past that point at this time. He was refusing treatment. He was, uh, he, he called Narcotics Anonymous absolutely useless. 
Sean mm. Kinney called it one of the world's longest suicides. That hurts. That's... I, unfortunately, he wasn't wrong. When I was writing this, like I wrote the um, first part, basically, uh, just the outline. And as I was writing it, I was like, okay, so he must have died in like 96, right? Mm-hmm. And then it got to 97. And I was like, okay, maybe he died in 98. And then 2000. And then 2002, I was like, holy shit, this is the world's longest suicide. I mean, he just kept going, but he wasn't doing anything for like those last seven or eight years. Um, Staley was seen at the Grammy Awards in the Feb- in February of 1997 when their song, again, was nominated for Best Hard Rock Performance. Staley also gave an interview in 1998 after hearing Cantrell promoting his new album on a rock station. So Lane called up the show and he said that he loved the album. Somehow, in late 1998, Lane made it out to record a couple of songs for Alice in Chains. They were Get Born Again and Died. The producer said at the time that Lane must have weighed about 80 pounds. Mm. Um, But at the recording session, nobody said anything about his appearance. Yeah. In 1998, Susan Silver, Alice in Chains manager, retired in a magazine called The Rocket, ran an article asking, Who's going to wipe and clean Alice in Chains now? Not long after that, somebody who's most likely Lane sent a jar of piss and a bag of shit to the editor saying, wipe and change this, motherfuckers. Also, the article, whoever wrote it. Yeah. Why was you, like, making a joke on someone's addiction like that? That's messed up. Yeah, it's seriously messed up. I, I wonder if they were taking a stab at Susan for maybe covering up and doing damage control for what was happening to Lane instead of getting him help she tried it, anyways it's it's still rude as fuck of that yeah. magazine they're just trying to be edgy and yeah. honestly like i hope that when they open their bag of shit that it kind of like splooshed out on them because <laughs> that's like <laughs> fucked up fuck you anyways <laughs> lane's last public appearance was at a show in support of jerry Cantrell's solo effort in seattle and he did lay down some vocals for the class of 99 group Featuring dudes from Rage Against the Machine, like Tom Morello was in it. They had some guys from uh, Jane's Addiction and Porno for Pyros. Lane's final years in solitude included playing video games or making art and mixing heroin and coke, which is called speedball. Mm. Um, And then eventually he picked up crack. And this is so sad and fucked up because this guy would never, ever leave his apartment. He would never leave. He was just holed up in there for the last several years of his life. So that means that there were literally dealers and enablers and seedy fuckers who created a network to bring him his medicine. He was so high all of the time, he didn't know how much time had actually passed. Mm. His friends would come and visit him, um, and he would say, like, oh, I saw, I just saw you last month. And they were like, it's been over a year. Mm. That hurts my heart, though. Like, yeah. But- it's so shitty of the dealers and the people he had friends and family who loved him who were hoping that he would get better and he wasn't actively going out there and making himself worse he was sitting in his fucking apartment Mm -hmm. so that means that people were coming to him and that pisses me off kenny mentioned just wanting to kick down his door and snap him out of it but he knew that lane didn't want to help himself so they continued trying to reach out. They continued trying to offer help. But everybody who loved him basically just had to sit and watch him wither away. So while he was ignoring his friends, at least Lane kept in contact with his parents, Nancy and Jim. 
Um, he did actually go visit them after his nephew was born. He seemed like he was in better spirits, but the next month, he started to seem like he might be sick. Wayne's immune system was already battered from the drug use, but his parents first noticed that something was wrong when his bank accounts went untouched for several weeks. Yeah, I mean, this is a guy who habitually buys drugs. Like, if he's not spending money, then what's going on? Right. So on April 19th of 2002, his mother, Nancy, called 911. Nancy, Jim, and the police went to his condo. They kicked down his door uh, at around 5.50 p.m. They found his frail body, six feet tall and only 86 pounds, partially decomposed on the couch. Um, He was identified by his dental records. There was cocaine, codeine, morphine, a full syringe of heroin, used needles, crack pipes. This was all scattered around his apartment. Mm. Nancy had actually been to his condo two days prior. She came by to let him know that Demery, his ex-girlfriend who passed away, that her brother had also died. But Lane didn't answer the door or the phone. It wasn't that surprising to her. That was pretty common for him. But she was concerned about... um, She heard his cat meowing inside. So why didn't she do a welfare check then? Also, wasn't he on a suicide watch? It was only a 24-hour suicide watch. Oh, okay. Because I was like, how many people were actually checking on them? And, and, you know, they could have reported the drugs to the authorities. And then things could have happened. I don't know. It's sad. It's sad. Yeah, that suicide watch was years earlier, too. It was right. right after his girlfriend died. In the couple of years leading up to his death, it wasn't unusual for people not to hear from him for long periods of time. Uh, Sean Kinney said he tried to call him three, at least three times a week, but Lane would never answer. And anytime he uh, Kinney was in the area, he would go to his apartment, but Lane would never let him in. Yeah, so. I, I think they just didn't want to admit that it might be because he was dead. Because they were used to it. They were yeah, used to him everybody. being that way. Because mm-hmm. his mom also, I think, said that she would try to call him at least three times a week and touch base. But they hadn't heard from him in two weeks. And the accountant called up and was like, we don't know what's going on. There's been no money moving around. So that's when they mm-hmm. that's when they called and checked. So the autopsy results found that Lane had overdosed on speedball, which is, like we said, heroin and cocaine. Mm-hmm. His body had been sitting lifeless in his apartment for two weeks. Uh, He died eight years to the day after Kurt Cobain on April 5th. And upsettingly, it was a surprise to nobody, not even to Lane. Um, He had remarked that he would never give give up drugs after all and accepted that that was how he would eventually die. The last person to see Lane alive was Alice in Chains bassist Mike Starr on his birthday, which was the day before April 4th. Mike while he was at his apartment, got into an argument with Lane, who he looked really, really bad, but he refused to call 911. Um, He was basically telling him, like, you need to go to the hospital, but he wouldn't do it. So upon finding out that Lane died the next day, Star regretted not just calling 911 for him. Mm -hmm. Star was also high on benzos at the time and walked out on Lane after their argument. So he started to blame himself, though nobody else, not even Lane's family, wanted him to take that on. Starr told this story, like we said, on Celebrity Rehab in 2010, one year before he overdosed and died himself. Yeah, that's such a such a weight to carry around. Um, Mike Starr had apparently not told anybody until that episode of Celebrity Rehab. Yeah. So it had been several years. Friends and fans held a memorial the night after Lane was discovered on April 20th, 2002 in Seattle. Alice in Chains bandmates and Chris Cornell of Soundgarden attended and a private service was held on April 28th, 2002. 
Cornell and Anna Nancy Wilson of Heart performed Wild Horses by the Rolling Stones. That's a good song. That's really good. Um, his remains were cremated and kept by his mother. Two months after his death, Cantrell dedicated his album Degradation Trip to Lane's Memory. His parents set up the Lane Staley Memorial Fund after getting donations from around the world. Like, they just started getting money from people and they were like, uh, we, we have to do, to do something with, this? with yeah. this. So they set up this fund to help heroin addicts and their families in the Seattle community. Allison Chains went inactive and refused to perform until a benefit for the Indian Ocean tsunami in 2004. The reception of this was pretty good, so they invited William Duvall of Cantrell's touring band to sing vocals at some reunion shows. There's a fine line here of keeping it a respect, like a respectful tribute versus capitalizing mm-hmm. on it. And Allison Chains kept it. They they keep it pretty somber. They had a five minute video tribute to Lane. It was his band. You know, he was the singer. But like also there are other members and they want to continue doing what they love, too. So it's kind of unfair to take that away from them. Yeah. But also I can see not ever wanting to tour again, losing your, you know, the guy that made your album sound the way it did them wanting to to continue usually warrants creating a new group rather than continuing as the original group Mm -hmm. um you see that happen a lot like peter Steele, when he died they were just like no we're good because peter Steele was the group he did everything for the group yeah but then also there's groups like queen who i mean they waited long enough and then eventually they did wait a very very long time came but they make they keep the show very respectful it's not like they're trying to just use it for money and like capitalize on someone's death they make the show about that person um and i'm assuming allison chains does the same thing it's more of a i don't know what do you want to call it remembrance yeah or something of freddie so yeah Mm -hmm. so many Many musicians released tributes, among them Smashing Pumpkins' song Bleeding the Orchid, Cold's song The Day Seattle Died, Stain's song called Lane, Black Label Society also had a song called Lane, Metallica had a song called Rebel of Babylon, Eddie Vedder wrote one called 42002, Hank Williams III also dedicated his 2011 album Attention Deficit Domination to Lane. The Grammys did not include Lane on their tribute to musicians' That had died in the year of 2002. Why do we let the Grammys matter again? Um, they don't. Actually, from this point on, let's like not mention Grammys cool. anymore. Because they don't want to mention somebody like Lane Staley. Like, what the fuck? That's just... How do you so consistently leave out any rock or metal musicians from your tributes? Or from your categories, even? I don't know. It's astounding. Um, so every year since Lane's death, Seattle holds a tribute on his birthday of August 22nd with proceeds benefiting the Lane Staley Memorial Fund. In 2009, Allison Chains reunited with the studio uh, in the studio with Duval, returning on vocals for a tribute album called Black Gives Way to Blue, with Elton John playing the piano on the title track. And this is perfect because Elton John was Lane Staley's first concert. That's so cute. I know. Can you imagine? Um, speaking of, I just saw Howard Stern, um, did an interview with Metallica and he pulled Elton John on a live feed and because Metallica's album, the blacklist just turned 30, the the black album turned 30. So they released the blacklist and it was a tribute. And so all these different artists covered all these Metallica songs from the black album Mm -hmm. and Elton John was on one of them. He did nothing else matters with Miley Cyrus and some other people. And so they pulled him on and Elton John is like a God. 
So Metallica's sitting there and he pops on the little screen and they were like, oh my God. Hi, Elton John. <laughs> like they're a little bit starstruck that it's fucking Elton John. Have right they there. never met him before? Probably maybe. have. And so Howard Stern's like asking him about the song and oh, oh, was this weird for you because this is a metal band and you're like not a metal guy? And he was like, no, it wasn't weird at all. This is one of the greatest songs ever written. Like ever. It's amazing. And James Hetfield started tearing up and he like cried. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I think it was, uh, it was nothing else matters. It was nothing else matters. Yeah. yeah. And it was like, can you imagine just like being that little, little kid, you know, inside and then having Elton John, one of your idols being like, yes, your song is one of the best songs ever. Anyways, it was really cute. So I can only imagine how like fitting and appropriate this was that right. Elton John played this song anyways. Um, the really sad thing about this for Lane's bandmates is that, like I said earlier, they don't want him to be remembered as being a withering drug addict because he was an incredible musician. They want him to be remembered for his kindness, the inspiration that he provided them with, and for his talent. And you guys can help us. Go listen to the playlist that we have built with all of his masterpieces, and we're going to put the tributes to Lane that were mentioned earlier up there. And don't fucking do heroin. Yeah. Don't do it. End of story. It's not worth it. Yeah. So this is the part where we're like really sad because we fucking talk about really sad stories on the podcast. How you guys feel? How you guys feeling right now? It's a little depressing just because it, it stretched out for years. Yeah. Probably well over a decade. Mm-hmm. I mean, he started drugs in the early 90s and then he died basically a decade later, 2002. Yeah. So especially after, what was it, 90... Starting 97, he started locking himself up and... Yeah, so the last five years get a of hold his of life. Yeah, that's such a long time to just drag this out and just keep abusing yourself like that. Sorry about that. But you guys asked for it, so there it is. Uh, but we really do... I, I love Allison Chains a lot. Um, so make sure you guys find the playlist. They are really, really good. Um, it's going to be on Spotify. We have two accounts on Spotify. There's this one, which is Death by Music Podcast. And then if you type in Death by Podcast Team, there's going to be a profile that you can click on and it's got all of the playlists or you can just look in the description for the episode. There's usually a link right there that you can just click on. It'll take you right to it. But yeah, this one's going to be really good. I'll put a whole bunch of like grunge stuff on there. I'm assuming you didn't make it this time because you're not like... I didn't. So I finished this today, so I haven't made it yet. Okay. Well, I figured I I would make it because like I made the Metallica one because that was obviously more up my alley. So I just put on... I think I put on like all of their first four albums. I just put everything on. I was like, well, Slayer, Anthrax, fucking Testament. Woo. I was just Iron Maiden. Woo. I just made a big ass metal playlist for the Metallica one. So I'm about to do the same thing for this one. We're going uh, grunge theme then, right? Sort of. Yeah. So a good one would be Weird Al's I'm Calling In Sick Today. Okay. It wasn't a parody, <laughs> but it is, he, he has these In the things where he does uh, parody styles. Yes. Where that particular song was the grunge style parody. It was one of his original works, but it's oh. pretty good. I've actually sent it to my boss a couple times when I've had to call in sick. Perfect. And I'll, I won't say anything to him. I'll just send him the video. I mean, and he's he got to watch it. the Weird Al video. <laughs> well, I'll have to remember to put that on there. In other news, um, we were all out and about earlier today doing various things. I went to the beach because, well, it was 80 degrees here. And I hopped onto the instagram page 
someone had tagged us in a post and they saw a t-shirt out and about. They saw someone wearing it. Yeah. In the wild. And so I looked at the post and I was like, oh, that's cool. So it was Lindsay. It was this girl, Lindsay. Hello, Lindsay. (laughs) She listens to the show and she's like somebody that I've wanted to be friends with, but we never like have time. Um, anyways, she tagged somebody's shirt and I was like, that's fucking cool. So I reshared it and it was literally Jake. (laughs) It was Jake in his shirt because I showed up there later and I was like, wait a minute, this place looks familiar. Jake's wearing his podcast shirt. Somebody here listens to our podcast and saw Jake and took a video of him wearing his shirt. What are the odds? (laughs) I don't know. Anyways, we sold a couple of shirts this weekend if you guys want one. Then send us an email or something. I don't care. Just like reach out. We'll get you a shirt. Deathbypodcastteam at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram if you search for Death by Podcast Team. Um, shirts are 20 bucks. Patreon is five. Five yeah. bucks. This season is over, but Patreon is still happening. Oh, oh yeah. Yes. We this should probably last, mention uh, that. Yeah. Like I just. Last episode of season three. Yeah. This is so, it. Yeah, we are. We're gonna uh, kind of take a break and regroup, uh, get our <laughs> scheduling back on track. So we're, you know, we're more consistent with our content for you right. guys. <laughs> but consistent content is available through the Patreon. So if you need more episodes, five dollars, and you could listen to what well, we have like six up there now. It's gonna be, I think, six at the at this point that this episode yeah. comes out. So, so you'll get six more for five dollars. Yeah, if you're de- if you're feeling deprived right now, if you if you can't handle the fact that next Wednesday we're not gonna come out with a full episode, just send us five dollars and like you can listen to all six that are up there <laughs> for the twenty seven club season. Easy. And we'll spread them out. Yeah, l- yeah. Listen to one every Wednesday. Yeah. So we are. We're going to take a break probably through the rest of the year. We'll still be doing mini episodes, but we need some time to figure out season four. So if you have suggestions, send them to us. Uh, Let us know what you want to hear. We've already got a couple of suggestions that we are working on. Yeah, we're excited to give you some more shit later on. But if if you want it now, then go to Patreon. That's it. My brain hurts. We still haven't gotten new headphones. Hopefully by season four, we have new headphones that don't squeeze our fucking brains out. Yeah. Brain coming out your nose. Yeah. Bye. Later. Music by Demons, at Demons Band on Instagram. Artwork by Mike Johnson. Writing and production by Cassie Gardner, Alex Motler, and Jake.